Jeremiah 31, would somebody read 15 to 22? Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim screaming. You have chastised me, and I was chastised. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For I, I turned back, for after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delighted child? Delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up for yourself landmarks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway. The way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these, your city. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Alright, so um, we talk here about Rachel. Do you remember who Rachel was? Who was she? The wife of Jacob. She was Jacob's wife. <coughs> Leah's sister. Leah's sister, mother of Joseph, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were the backbone of the northern kingdom. Benjamin was a part of Judah. So she was kind of tied in with key tribes. She was Jacob's favorite wife. Now, what do you see her doing here in verse 15? Weeping. Because? Her children are no more. Yeah. The Israel being taken into captivity, God destroying uh, the, the nation and... Uh, punishing his people. She, as the mother of a big part of the nation, is grieving her uh, offspring's uh, terrible plight. And God comes in and says, restrain your voice from weeping because they're going to return. There's hope for the future. They're going to come back. They're going to be blessed. So Rachel's weeping is going to be able to be restrained. She's going to be comforted. Her lost children aren't really dead. They're coming back home. They're going to be blessed again by God. This is just another way of saying this comforting, reassuring message God has got for his people, that there's hope for the future. We're thinking in the foreground, the return from captivity, ultimately the greater return in Christ. And uh, when they come back, Look at verse 18. I've surely heard Ephraim grieving and, and, and feeling chastened and, and, and repenting, verse 19, smiting the thigh, being ashamed, humiliated. And again, we have this idea of the change of heart. The discipline leads to repentance. 
leads to contrition and shame and remorse. Where the people learn the lessons, they come back to God humbly. They regret their sin. They're they're convicted of the need to turn back to God. God, God's disciplining punishment was for the purpose of humbling and, and, and bringing the sins of the people uh, to their mind and hearts and causing them to grieve and and return to God. There is no way to produce griefless repentance. Remorse is a part of the process of turning back. Sometimes we are uh, desperate to get rid of guilt feelings. We do all kinds of things to try to either cover up or reverse guilt. But guilt is a very great blessing. It's like having nerve endings that feel pain. If you can't feel pain, wouldn't it be awesome? No, it'd be a disaster. If you couldn't feel pain, you'd end up hurting yourself and you wouldn't know it. I had a a friend who was in a car accident. He's been gone for a while now, but, but he was in a car accident years and years ago. And he had no feeling from like the waist down. There were some times when he burned his foot and he knew it when he started smelling the burning flesh. Because he felt nothing. Feelings, the pain is painful, but it's a, it's a really helpful thing. It's a healthy thing. And the guilt feelings, the spiritual pain, don't reach for an aspirin every time you feel guilty. You know, let the guilt bring you to grief, to tears, and to repentance. Grief that leads to despair doesn't help. Grief that leads to feeling sorry for yourself doesn't help. But godly sorrow that leads you to repentance enables God to be able to bless you again because he can only bless a repentant people. So you've got a lot in here of this this godly sorrow bringing repentance that leads to God blessing his people again. And God wants to. Verse, Verse 20, God remembers him, yearns for him, wants to have mercy... God punishes reluctantly. You ever you ever heard a parent say uh, when he spanks his kid, "This hurts me more than it hurts you." I don't know that I ever said that to my kids, but I bet you anything there were times that was true. You know, a parent doesn't have fun disciplining their children. It's not enjoyable if it's a loving parent. But on the other hand, we do it because we do love our children and we know they need to be brought to grief so that they will repent and learn. But God's always longing to bless. He wants to. That's God's greatest desire. And so he says, set up for yourself road marks, guideposts, so you can find the way back home. That's what he's saying. It's kind of like Israel in Hansel and Gretel fashion needs to mark the way to go back home because they're going to return. God's punishment has a uh, has a way back. His punishment is just to get them to repent so that he can bless them again. Notice he says again, return, O virgin of Israel. God is already calling them, uh, you know, unviolated. When God forgives, he puts puts us back like as if we've never had the guilt. You know, that idea of the absolute forgiveness of God is a key to our living faithfully for God. If 
you see your record as being all smudged and dirty and all that, you have no incentive to keep it clean. When you realize that God's forgiveness totally expunges <coughs> all sins from the record and you've got a pure white record before God, that's what enables you to live for God. Comments and thoughts through verse 22. I think that analogy that you gave right there kind of explains people of the world who don't really see a point in doing good. I agree. Yeah, if, if you can't ever be anything other than a wicked sinner, what's the use in trying to change? I, I think forgiveness is so essential to our repentance. Knowing that we can be forgiven enables us to live for God. Forgiving each other can also help, too. Absolutely, yeah. Because if a kid feels like his parents will never accept him, he's done things that are too bad, then what's the use of trying? That kind of a thing. Brandon? Yeah, this is how we respond to our guilt is so critical. I mean, like you mentioned, in our society nowadays, it's, you don't need to feel bad. That's just the way you are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then when we try so many different ways to make ourselves where we don't feel the guilt, like you said, people take medicine... Uh, to try to, or drugs or whatever, so they don't feel the guilt, and, and you know, it's an escape. And they got to that point where, and earlier it talked about how they didn't know how to blush. Yeah. And eventually, I mean, eventually you still feel the guilt. And that's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good, good points. Just the last phrase of verse 22, maybe. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Any, any. Thoughts on it you want to share so we don't just all look at each other like that? Ah. Here's one possibility. When he talks about a woman will encompass a man, could this mean Israel embraces God that now she's seeking again? But there's about as many explanations of that as there are explainers, and I don't think anybody's got a very good handle on it. <laughs> Probably the hardest phrase in Jeremiah. Verse 19 says, um, about halfway through, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. What does I smote on my thigh mean? It's obviously some symbol of feeling guilty, feeling remorse, but I don't know exactly. Anybody know? I may used to have known, but I sure don't at the moment. Anything else? Well, I Um, verse 15, isn't that used, um, when Harry kills the baby? It is. Isn't that, like, I don't quite see the similarity there, other than there are children who have died and so the mothers are weeping. Yeah, so I was going to say, uh, so if verse 15 is talking about that, and you, from this you could never get that. Right. Maybe verse 16 was, <laughs> you know, what about verse 17 and 18? Yeah. <clears throat> because they're not referenced in the Testament, but well, maybe they're... Uh, well, and, and so many times whenever you see a, a passage from the Old Testament, like the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's supposed to call to mind the whole psalm. And here I'm thinking, if I were a mother who had just lost her child to Herod's sword, I don't think I would be terribly comforted by the second part. I would be 
I'd be a little bit, you know, oh, don't cry. It'll be all okay. Oh, really? Uh, but maybe there's a reason I'm not a mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, I think that, that when we see Old Testament passages quoted in the New Testament, I do think we have to recognize that they aren't all totally parallel in why they're quoted or in what sense. I think when it comes to the killing of the massacre of the Bethlehem babies by Herod, you've just got another case in which Rachel, as the mother of the nation, is grieving and mourning for the loss of her children. You know, that she's grieving again, she's crying again. You know, it's it's just a, a, a sign of, you know, the terrible situation. But maybe it's a pointer also in Matthew that in the same way as he or she was eventually comforted as God had a good, you know, blessed purpose in the end, well, what happened with the massacre of the Bethlehem babies was that Jesus had been born and he was the one who was going to provide the salvation and hope for his people. So maybe it's also a pointer to the idea that this was uh, the pain that would lead to blessing. This was the pains of childbirth that would lead to the birth of the child. Sort of but I think it's just another occasion of that. Not that this passage was even, in this case, primarily looking at that. I think probably this passage is looking at this event, but there are many other events where Rachel has to grieve the massacre of her children. So a lot of the passages in the New Testament, when they're used, some of them say that the prophecy may be what you know would be fulfilled, which it does here. Some of them mm -hmm. just use that as other, you know, it's like this or as it was written, so it is here. Maybe it's a type of thing or something like that. So I don't know. Yeah, sometimes there's not even any kind of a formula. It just uses Bible language to express something. And so it, they, I think there's a variety of situations. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, we might sometimes use Bible language to express something because we're so familiar with Bible language. Not necessarily we mean exactly the same thing that that language did in the context. Sometimes it's almost like, here's another kind of a situation like it. Mm -hmm. And other times it's like, this is the true meaning of the text. I think it's almost a case-by-case -case basis. that We have to go back and look at the context in both cases. And uh, I, I think we, we miss it when we try to just come up with kind of like, this is one pattern. I think there's several purposes for looking back at Old Testament, uh, you know, prophecies. And you've got a diversity of ways. You've not only got those quotations, but how many times do you have some allusion back to an Old Testament event or an Old Testament character or whatever? Some of those are just to teach us lessons. And some of those are to show us, you know, greater purpose and meaning in the New Testament, etc. So there's a lot of diversity in that, I think. Other thoughts? John? Uh, back when we were talking about how the forgiveness um, is something good to look forward to, um, is that meant to be a, like, motive for serving God, or is that a, is that a kind of a plus thing? Like, is 
would we serve God still if we knew we weren't going to be forgiven? Well, maybe there's a sense in which it's both. Certainly, forgiveness is a blessing for serving God. There's no doubt about that. I think the Bible sometimes presents forgiveness as a motive as well. I would say that God is uh, a great enough God to deserve our service, forgiveness or no forgiveness. Um, but, but I do think that's one reason we want to serve God is because we want to be right with Him. We long to be right with Him. And so that is a motivation, but it shouldn't be the only one. Other thoughts? We discussed uh, something similar in my Bible class at uh, church, and um, our teacher posed an interesting question. It was, would we serve God if there was no promise of heaven? And that, that made you think, but like I thought of it kind of in the way, if there was no promise of heaven, but there was still the... Um, punishment of hell if you don't serve God. You would still be motivated to serve God, most definitely. Well, you know, obviously we do have a variety of motivations given in the Bible, but I think, you know, the useful thing about all that is to just think, is God good enough that he deserves our service independent of reward or punishment? I think that's Job. You know, Satan's point in Job was God doesn't serve, uh, Job doesn't serve you for nothing. You know, mm-hmm. only reason he serves you, A, is because of what all he's getting out of it, and B, after he took all that away, it's, well, to keep from, from being punished with bad health. You know, so he's serving you, A, for the reward, B, to escape punishment, and Job proved him wrong on both, both counts. You know, the fact is, God's good enough, and God's great enough, that there are people who will serve him just because he's God, even if they don't think they're getting anything out of it, either getting a positive or avoiding a negative. And God ought to be served because he's God, even if we didn't get anything out of it. We will, and we look forward to that, and praise God for that. But he is good enough to be served regardless. I think that Gary Henry talked about that, and maybe had some helpful things to say, just kind of mentioning, like, that there are a variety of motivations for serving God, and depending on where we are in our spiritual life, we may be more strongly motivated by a less good motivation. But I think the idea is that we're moving toward God, and as we grow, hopefully we will be more motivated by better motivators. Uh, But I don't know that we should you know, beat ourselves up or or try to say, oh, well, I'm only going to be motivated by this. I I think it's kind of a natural part of our growth process. Yeah, Gary said some really good things about all that stuff, and I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, because the Lord uses, you know, the reward and punishment as motivation. So, I mean, clearly they're not illegitimate. (laughs) Though I do think maturing, like 1 John would say, perfect love casts out fear. The more we serve out of love, the less fear is the dominant motivation. Doesn't mean fear is not a legitimate one since Jesus uses it. It's kind of uh, a maturing process. And really love is a, is a, is a motivation that will uh, help us more. You know, you serve out of fear. If you think he's not looking, you might try to get by with something. If you serve out of love, you know, you want to please him. I think that's, a, that's more helpful as we can grow to that point. Other thoughts? Is 
the term Ephraim ever used to refer to Jesus? The term Ephraim ever used to refer to Jesus? I can't think of a place. Because I was just thinking, you know, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? And and it, that yearning for for that relationship. I mean, I think this primarily here is just God's people, Ephraim being Israel. Ephraim is used a lot of times for Israel. Okay. Because Ephraim was the north, the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. Okay. Um, well, how about, let's see, uh, 23 to 30. This is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with the flocks. For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So, God is going to bless his people again. Uh... And in many ways, I think it's interesting what he says in 24, Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. Now, normally farmers and shepherds don't get along that great, because they're kind of competing for the same territory. You know, and the farmers are worried that the livestock is going to invade their crops and uh, the shepherds may resent the the amount of territory the farms have uh, taken over and so they're kind of perennial opponents rivals but now they're going to be harmonious God brings unity among his people he blesses them all. He satisfies the weary one, refreshes everyone who languishes. So he's just saying this is going to be a wonderful time that will reverse the legendary tension between these two groups and they're united are blessed by God. He says days are coming when I'm going to sow Israel and Judah with good seed. He's going to bless them again. I love verse 28. Just as surely... As God had judged them, he will bless them. You know, when God threatened to punish them, did he do it? So when God promises to bless them, will he do it? You know, in a sense, the fact that God always fulfilled his threats gives us confidence that God will always fulfill his promises. He's a reliable God both directions. In those days, verse 29, they won't say, this, this seemed to have been a little, a common little slogan. You see it in Ezekiel 18. You know we do that. We've got these little truisms that we throw in all the time, you know, that are kind of like an explanation. 
you know, we're going to say, too many cooks spoil the broth, and you get too many people working on something together, it's going to mess it up, you know, kind of a thing. And we just kind of, we may use that not just in cooking, we'll use it in all sorts of areas. Well, they were, they were always used this idea, the fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's not really my fault, you know, uh, we're just suffering what our fathers did, he says. Well, they won't say that anymore, because in Christ, in the new covenant, everybody dies for his own sins. If you eat the sour grape, it's your teeth that get set on edge. Uh, so the new covenant stresses individual responsibility. The sins of the past, the sins of their fathers don't hang over their heads. You know, the one who dies in the new covenant is the one who commits the sin. Uh, so there's, uh, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's salvation. Comments and thoughts. Red. Is verse 26, after this I woke and looked around my sleep was sweet to me, is that Jeremiah? Yeah, I think so. So that, like, this is like helping me sleep better? Well, or maybe he's seen a lot of stuff in a dream. And it was a very encouraging dream. I mean, I'm guessing he's probably lost a lot of sleep. All this going on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, dreams don't necessarily mean you lost sleep, but yeah. And who's the I in verse 25? I think God. Okay, because it comes from right before that, Judah speaking. And then right after that, Jeremiah is waking up and it's just all using I. It's not mm-hmm. like clarifying, it's just a little confusing. Yeah, I understand. We do have that. <laughs> Especially between the prophet and God. Uh, you get that all the time. The prophet kind of merging with God, and it's hard to tell one where one leaves off and the next one begins. Because the prophet's a spokesman for God, so, yeah. I doubt that it was God that woke up, but... Uh, so, are you saying verse 26, like when he woke up, like he's waking to a dream? Yeah. I think, he, I think what he just saw, he probably got a vision when he was asleep. That's my guess. I don't usually think of the dream that way. Other thoughts? Uh, so 29 and 30, in the Old Covenant, the sins of the Father did uh, hang over the children's heads? And that's changing in the New Covenant? Well, I think the basis for forgiveness is much stronger than and so there wasn't as deep a sense of forgiveness in the Old Covenant. And maybe more of a sense of group judgment. I think the New Covenant has a more individualistic sense. Even from the standpoint that God's people was national Israel. And more of a sense of just this, you know, kind of being judged on a corporate basis. Yes, I agree, but that's a lot clearer and stronger in the New Covenant. I mean, because you were a member of God's people by your bloodline, I mean, even you were circumcised or whatever, and you were part of God's nation. Whereas in the New Covenant, you aren't until you really are. (laughs) Or, Or like with... We were talking about the other night about the sin of Achan and how all of his family was included in the punishment. And 
this is saying that's not going to be happening, but that, uh, like, Cora and, and his family and every, surely there was some innocent person in that group, but because of the, the, the corporate judgment on the group, and, and and certainly in the judgments, say when Israel was conquered by other nations, um, is it um, Ezekiel twenty one? I think that talks about how both the righteous and the wicked were going to be punished, going to be destroyed, judged by the the invasion. Other thoughts. Okay, uh, well, a very famous passage for us, um, 31 to 40. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb, then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Days are coming. God says, I'll make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. This is a bold move on God's part because he's offering these who've broken the covenant a fresh start. He's going to offer them a new covenant. Uh... And, wow, it's going to be great. It's not going to be like the old one. It's going to be a, a, a that, that covenant they broke. You know, that covenant uh, was violated. So here's the covenant he's going to make. Now this is the, uh, this becomes the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8. But he says, here's what it's going to be like. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their heart. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Now, what did Israel have in their heart before this? Stone. Yes, and from Jeremiah's perspective, 
evil, wickedness. You know, look at the, uh, see the Jeremiah 3.17 at the end of it. They will, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. Uh, you have that lots of times. In uh, 7.24, uh, they walked in the stubbornness of their evil heart, etc. But he's going to put God's law in their heart. He's going to write it on their heart. Now, you made reference to Ezekiel, where God was going to give them a heart transplant. He's going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Now, the heart of flesh. Flesh is different from stone in the sense that it's more... Alive. More alive, more moldable, malleable, work withable. You know, God can shape it. That heart of stone, man, only a chisel and then it's tough. You know, so God is going to make his people sensitive to him. Um, and he was going to. Uh, engrave this law on their heart. Now, in the Old Covenant, the law was engraved on tablets of stone. But now it's going to be written on their heart. So you see that is a real degree of progress. And then he says uh, in verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, in the Old Covenant, you were in the Covenant as a baby, and then as you grew up, they had to teach you to know the Lord. (laughs) In the New Covenant, it's an individual thing. It's not a national thing. You don't get in the Covenant until you already know the Lord. So, it, you know, in in national Israel, when they were a part of the Covenant, you had some people who never wanted to be a part of the Covenant, never intended to be, never repented, never believed, never anything, and they were a part. But you, until you trust the Lord and repent, you're not even in the covenant. Now, it's it's a it's a greater um, you know opportunity. This excludes infant membership in the covenant, I think. And then he says, "For I will forgive their iniquities and their sin; I will remember no more." It's true that in the old covenant, God forgave people's sins, but only provisionally in the sense that He forgave their sins based upon the fact that He knew Jesus was going to die and provide the means for their forgiveness. In the New Covenant, we not only have the sense of forgiveness, we understand fully how God's able to do that. So our sense of forgiveness and relief is a much greater thing. This New Covenant was better than the Old one. Thoughts and comments just on that, because I know that's a key passage through 34. What's the Isaiah stone? Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. I wonder, like, what they were thinking when he told them this. Like, I mean, did they truly understand this new covenant? Like, what it would be like? You would assume the fulfillment clarifies it, but it would sure be exciting. Sure, you know, wow, God's given them a whole new start. And this is this is different than I'm thinking back to I guess the Exodus where there was the co- the covenant was made and then they broke it and then he reestablished the covenant co- covenant because of the same one 
Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. And this one is something that's, like, actually different. Yeah, transcends the old one. And so he says, you know, here's what the Lord says. Who gives the sun, the moon, the stars, and they're all predictable. He stirs up the sea and its waves roar. Now he says, look, in verse 36, if this fixed order departs from before me. In other words, if the sun, moon, and stars quit functioning. You know, if the sun goes haywire and starts coming up in the middle of the night. You know, or starts rotating from west to east, or, you know, obviously, that's kind of a geocentric perspective. But if the sun doesn't do its normal stuff, and the, the moon and the stars, you know, don't, don't work right, if this fixed order departs, then Israel will cease to be a nation before me forever. That's how sure this is. God's love for his people is just as durable and countonable as how God operates the world itself. You can as much trust God's promise to bless his people as you can the idea the sun's going to come up tomorrow and it's going to be in the east for the, uh, you know, 50 millionth time in the history of the world or whatever. Um, And he says, if the heavens, verse 37, above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below... Can you really measure the heavens? You know, we've got super powerful telescopes, and we still have no idea how vast the universe really is. With all of our technology, we still can't measure it. You know, and we can't search out the foundations of the earth. We know some things about it, but there's a lot we don't know about what's inside of there. But if you could measure the heavens and if you could search out the foundation of the earth, then God would cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they've done. (laughs) So what he's saying is, you know, it's as impossible that God would reject his people than it is that creation could ever be fully scoped out and measured. (laughs) There are two things that aren't going to happen You're not going to measure the universe, and God's not going to reject his people. That's how sure this is. God is giving tremendous reassurance here. Absolutely, God will fulfill his promises to his people no matter what. Uh, Notice, he's still dealing with the remnant. He's not going to reject all the offspring of Israel. The faithful remnant, he will bless. And then he says the days are coming when it's going to, I'm going to rebuild everything and when I'm going to take the part that was defiled and consecrated to the Lord. That's pretty amazing. Look at verse 40. The whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. You take the most defiled part and you dedicate it to God, consecrate it to God. That's incredible. Everything, even the most despicable things in Christ belong to God or dedicated to God. So, just great promises. Clearly a little challenging to know exactly what they meant, especially from Jeremiah's perspective, but it sounds awesome. And we in Christ's 
see it so much better. These promises are really fulfilled in the spiritual Jerusalem, in the blessings we have in Christ that are so powerful. Thoughts and comments? There's a lot of uh, days mentioned. Um, Verse 27, days are coming. Um, Verse 29, in those days. Verse 31, days are coming. 33, after those days. Um, And then again in 38. How many of these are the same days, and how many of these are different days? I think they're all the same. I think the idea of days are coming, or in that day, is really talking about the day of blessing. Not necessarily trying to define a specific date on the calendar, but he often uses, in the last day, or days are coming, or in that day, all of it, or in the latter days, there's a lot of phrases like that that all mean in this future time of blessing that's still somewhat undefined chronologically. Even at, uh, verse 33 where it says after those days, mm-hmm. it's still the... I think so. Okay. Is there any uh, reference to the present Jew and Israel in this? You know, I hesitate to say absolutely none. Because there is a sense in which God was preserving his people and blessing them in some ways, even in the return from captivity. But there's a whole lot of this that goes beyond that. I mean, I don't think there was any sense that I can think of a new covenant with the people returning from captivity. So, yeah, there's still some shadow fulfillment, but it's really pretty sketchy here, I would say. Verse 38, um, and those verses right there, it mentions stuff that are going to be rebuilt, like the city wall will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. They rebuilt that in Nehemiah, didn't they? Yes. So is that fulfillment of this, or is this talking more of the further days that it has been talking about? I think this would be a good example. Yes, that's a sort of a shadow fulfillment, that's sort of a sketchy fulfillment, but I think the greater fulfillment is in the New Jerusalem. You've got that concept several times in the New Testament. You've got it in Galatians 4. You've got it in several passages in Hebrews. You've got it in Revelation 21. We are really in the new Jerusalem that God's rebuilt in a greater and more, you know, uh, extravagant way than just like rebuilding the city under Joshua and Zerubbabel or the walls under Nehemiah. That That's sort of a... Uh, a down payment is sort of a, a reasonable facsimile of the great restoration in Christ. You've got a lot of that through here. You know, yes, there's a kind of a foreground fulfillment, but man, the ideal is in Christ. Other questions or comments? I know it sounds strange, but that's pretty typical for me. Um, verse 40, <laughs> the whole valley of the dead vo- Dead bone, dead bodies, shall be made holy to the Lord. And I was just—I wonder when, when Paul finally got that, understood the message of Christ, and he goes back and looks in his scroll and sees that even the most vile, even he who had, who filled himself with dead bodies in a sense, um, even he could be made holy to the Lord. I just that type of a, a connection with someone like Paul and 
us too, but I mean, just. Yeah. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. Think about First Corinthians 6, such were some of you. Whoa. <laughs> some of these Christians in Corinth had an extremely colorful background, you know, and they were washed and sanctified and justified. That's exactly what you see. God saves the worst of men. Other thoughts? Well, chapter 32 is, is a similar thing, but it's based on a historical event. Uh, kind of like...